I pray that you had a chance to carefully read Matthew 16 um, and, and prayerfully read through it. There's a lot in it. Uh, we've got a lot of, of I'm, I'm excited about, tomorrow, about this morning. There's a lot in Matthew 16 and the verses we're going to be looking at together. And I think that uh, po- quite possibly you may never look at it the same uh, again after this morning. We call it Peter's Confession. Um, two weeks ago, Les reminded us that we were halfway through Matthew, mathematically, by getting to chapter 14. And that's, that's correct. But I think this morning, for discipleship, for what we're talking about all year long, I think for discipleship, this is the pivot point of the gospel according to Matthew. And speaking of that, um, you ever notice we have books, chapters, and verses and I like books, chapters, and verses. It definitely makes Bible study a lot easier if you're talking with somebody and you say, well, where does it say that? And you can tell them where to go look it up, right? But what I want us to try to do this morning is, is forget the books, chapters, and verses for a minute and think about the scenes. Because if you, if you are a fan of a movie or a book, you probably don't tell somebody, hey, in the script on page 3001 uh, on line 16,000, the, the actor says this. You actually say something like, you remember that scene? where such and such happens, and then this character comes in, and then they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Well, that's kind of what we need to do this morning with Matthew 16, because we're going to go back and pick up a couple little data points that we can connect some dots in order to uh, see exactly what's going on here in this chapter. So I invite you to do Bible study with me. Let's do it together. And step number one for Bible study is to start with prayer, because we need God with us. So let's pray. God, we ask you to join us As we read, listen, and hear the text this morning, place us in the scene, enable us to see and hear things this morning that we will carry with us for the rest of our lives. May the Holy Spirit remind us of what you show us here this morning in our future reading and studying, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So let's read read Matthew 16, 13 through, through 24 together. This is from the ESV, so it's the same as your as your little journal Bible. Um, And hopefully you've got some space there. You might be able to jot some of these things down as we go through this morning. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The word of the Lord, and hopefully you notice that I, I moved the verses closer together. They're, they're in different sections in our book and probably in your Bible, whatever translation you're using. But for this scene, they all flow together. This all happened in very close proximity. So we need to keep that in, in, in front of our minds as we enter this study together. So here's a couple of things I want us to think about. Don't be scared of Scripture. God gave it to us for us to learn about Him. It's not something we have to be scared of. If it is strange or weird, it's probably important. We must not explain it away. And what I mean by must not explaining it away is biblical theology does not begin with us. It actually begins with the text as it stands and it's understood within the context that produced it, which is the scene that's actually going on in, in this uh, certain part of Matthew. Now, last week, I, I hung on Les's words when he got to lesson number four. He said, great faith begins by understanding who Jesus is. And I thought, there's my connection for next week right there. And I wrote it down because this is where we're going to start. We're going to do some truth claims this morning, about, about five, if I remember correctly. We're going to ask some questions, and we're going to go to the text, and we're going to see how those questions get answered. Truth claim number one, Jesus is Yahweh, God. Not something we say quite that frankly all the time. We, I know almost everybody, if not everybody in this room and online believes that, but we don't usually phrase it that way. But here's how we can go back and we can look at what we've learned from Matthew and we can bring these texts into the scene this morning to understand what's going on in chapter 16. If we go back to chapter 8 and we think about what the disciples saw, you had the, the, the man among the tombs that had the legion of spirits in him and they watched Jesus heal him. They watched Jesus cast the demons out and the demons asked, hey, uh, send us into those pigs, if you will. And Jesus said, go. And they went into the pigs. And then the disciples watched the pigs run down the cliff, fall into the Sea of Galilee, and drown. Well, in chapter 14, they're on the Sea of Galilee. And as Les went over very, very detailed, uh, Jesus comes walking on the water to them around two or so in the morning, two or three in the morning, and they say, it's a ghost. Well, they might think it's a ghost because they know those evil spirits that were in the pigs came out of a human being and went into the pigs, and then the pigs died when they went into the water. And the worldview at the time believed that evil spirits lived in the water. So it would be somewhat logical that if you saw something you couldn't explain, you might think that it's evil and it's a ghost and it's something to be scared of because of where you are and what you had seen just not, not too long before that. But here's the other thing that we've got to pick up in this in this text in Matthew 14. Jesus speaks to them and says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, notice he doesn't say his name. He doesn't say, Take heart, it's Jesus of Nazareth, or Take heart, it is Jesus. He just says, It is I. Oh, okay. So maybe you could argue that they can understand his voice over the water and whatever else is going on. Um, but there's more to this. There's a lot more to this, actually, that that uh, Peter is probably thinking through for us to get to, to chapter 16. If you look in the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament to Greek, the exact same phrase is found for when Moses asks God, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? And he says, ego in me in Greek, which is it is I, 
But really that phrase is, I am that I am. So imagine they're out on the water. They think they see a ghost. They're scared. They see somebody walking. And then that person says, I am that I am. Do not fear. Well, that changes things. That's not just their friend and somebody they know. That's a phrase that they have realized that he's saying he's God. Furthermore, we've, we've talked about Psalm 107 before. The fact that Yahweh's the only being that can calm the seas and control nature and do those things, and they see that. And then notice this phrase, when they got back in the boat after the wind ceased, they worshiped him. So they are now acknowledging that Jesus is God because they're offering him worship. Only, only being in the universe that can accept worship is Yahweh. And Jesus accepts their worship, and then they say, truly you are the Son of God. So now we can get to chapter 16 and we can understand how Peter made this answer, right? When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, which all of this has been going on and building to this point. And now we see uh, where the text gets used for other, other items. Like we're going to go away from discipleship a minute and go to church history. Truth claim, the rock is not Peter. If you think about this... Um, and you look at the text, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter. In the Greek, Petros, which can mean rock, but it really means a rock like I can pick it, like the size of this remote, you know, a little rock, a pebble, something that could maybe build something else. And then he says, And on this rock, but in the original language, it says Petra, which is a different word, which means boulder or huge rock. So there's a, there's a comparison, there's wordplay going on there. And he goes on to say that, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against this, which we'll address here in a second. Well, if you're going, perhaps, with less and I and a group to Israel this December, December 26th through January 6th of next year, we're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. And here's a picture of Caesarea Philippi, which you can see is made of a lot of rock. The ruins of what was there and the temples uh, and the buildings and structures that were there, that column that's there in that picture, lots of rock, rock to the left. I mean, the whole place is basically rock. So you could see where that area would be a much bigger rock than a rock like I'm holding in my hand. And interestingly enough, historically, prior to the Hellenistic period, no name is known for the area that becomes Caesarea Philippi because it's named after the Roman Caesars. That's how it ends up with the name Caesarea Philippi. Before that, it was known as the area of two Old Testament towns, Baal Gad and Baal Hermon, who were located in this region. And those two cities were known as the Twin Cities and the Gates of Sheol. So in other words, they were the opening of the underworld. They were the gateway to the, to the realm of the dead. They were where people went when they died. And if you go over there with us, you can see all this, and you can qualify what I'm saying. Um, this, this is an exhibit that's over there, and if we zoom in on it, you can see what it might have looked like from an artist's rendering there And that first picture we looked at that would be on your left, back behind that temple of Augustus, is the cave that was the very first picture. And they literally thought and believed that the evil spirits and the people of the dead came and went through that cave. And it became the area that was a area to worship the god Pan. So when Jesus says this, this passage becomes one of the most controversial in the Bible. Why? Because the Catholic tradition says that this is proof that Peter's the first pope, and everybody who descends from Peter is in the lineage of being the pope. Where Protestant traditions like our own say, no, 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 we're going to base this actually off 1 Corinthians 10.4 and say that the rock, the big rock, the boulder, is actually God. Well, 
I don't think either one of those are actually correct. Um, the reference to the rock in this place is actually the place that Jesus is standing. It's actually what we call Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon. And when we view it in this perspective, the scene takes on so much more significance because this is the geography that is basically ground zero for the enemies of the kingdom, for the enemy of life, which is the Lord of the dead. The gates of Sheol in Old Testament times, the domain of, of Baal, who was known as the Lord of the dead, this is exactly where Jesus goes and says this is where he's going to establish this church to take on and combat that and that the church will win. So several scholars, as you can see there on the screen, even can connected some dots for us other places in the New Testament where the name for Baal, who is known as the Lord of the dead, is actually from the Ugaritic language uh, known as um, got to get my pronunciation right here, Baal Zebul Ars, Prince Baal of the Underworld, which is how we get in the New Testament Beelzebul and Beelzebub when we see that name. So this really isn't about who gets to be Pope or not. Uh, it is a cosmic confrontation with Jesus challenging the authority of the Lord of the dead, and the theological messaging could not be any clearer. So if we go forward with that, we're building on these truth claims. Look at the next one. Gates are defensive structures, not offensive weapons. When was the last time anybody told you, hey, don't push me any harder, I'll go get my gates, I'll come after you? That's not what they do, right? They threaten you with some offensive weapon. They don't, they don't threaten you with a defensive weapon. And Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail. Actually, actually in the Greek, prevail, or sorry, against is actually not even there. It's more like the gates of Hades will not withstand. And so what he's saying is, this is where the geographic area that is known for the devil is centralized. And this is exactly where he's putting down the gauntlet and saying, my church, my people that I'm now establishing will go into those areas, into Hades, and pull people out. The gates will not be able to withstand my church being able to keep people from going there, which is awesome news, right? This is world-changing news. Hades has no claim on those who align themselves with Jesus, is what he's saying. And he will reverse the curse of death, and his own will rise because of him. So it really is at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus proclaimed his messiahship as a prophetic declaration of spiritual warfare against the devil and his demons. Hell is defenseless. Hell is defenseless against Jesus and his church. None of us are going to go there, thanks to Jesus. All right, let's go back for a second. Wait a second, though, Stan. Truth claim. Let's go back. Jesus' church is constructed of rocks, Petros, you know, people like Peter and Paul and James and Jude and other people. Well, yes, absolutely, it, it is. And Jesus' church is not built on Peter or Paul any more than it's built on you and me. And you may say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. Well, okay, yes, Peter does preach the first sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 when the church actually, you know, starts or the new the new era of God's people start. So yes, Paul is the Gentile, is the apostle to the Gentiles. So absolutely, those are two very important people. But here's the thing. They're not with us right now, and we're here. And we're the body of Christ, and you and I are ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ, baptizing people that are called by the Holy Spirit. And every time we do that, like was announced this morning to the kids at, at camp, every time that happens, somebody's transferred out of those gates they're not going to go to Hades. They're in Christ, and we are the ones that are helping Jesus do that. So 
through his church, we actually are little Pauls and Peters and Marys and uh, other, other people. Let's go back then. What does that mean? What kind of power does that actually give us? Well, this is a text that oftentimes hasn't been understood very well. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here's the thing. What we just went through is that text. If someone is added to the book of life because God caused them through the Holy Spirit, he sends them before one of me or you as ambassadors and representatives of Christ. We listen, we hear from God, we agree to help them follow him and baptize them, then whatever we bind here, whoever we, whoever we help become bonded to Christ is bound to Christ in heaven. Whoever here rejects Jesus on the earth also rejects Jesus in heaven. So the power we have is phenomenal, only because of God and the Holy Spirit, but this is the work that we're actually doing. Um, sometimes we just don't realize the magnitude of it, I think. Truth claim, the next one. Jesus does not call Peter the devil. Let's go back and look at 16, uh, sorry, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, if we leave Satan out for a second, listen, get behind me. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. So Satan there is more of Peter is, Peter is blocking Jesus. And before we go into detail on that, look at what it might have said if it was the other way. If he was really calling Peter the devil, it would say something probably like, then Satan entered into Peter, like it does when he enters into Judas, even either in uh, Luke or also in John. But we don't have that here. We don't have the personified individual evil person entering into Peter. What we have is we have Jesus turning to him and saying, get behind me. You're blocking my mission. You are attempting to disciple the rabbi rather than be discipled. You're out front, Peter. You're trying to tell him, oh, we're never going to let this happen, Lord. This is never going to happen. Well, where did the charge come from? It came from the Father, not just Jesus deciding he's going to do this. If Jesus follows, follows Peter's advice instead of the Father's will, the mission will be lost. So what Jesus is actually saying to Peter, because remember just moments ago, he compliments him and says, hey, what you have, what you have proclaimed has not been given to you by flesh and blood, but from my Father. And then he turns around and calls him the devil? No, he turns around and says, hey, you, you got that right. But if you, get, if you try to block me from what I'm supposed to do, then you're a hindrance to me. You're, you're the Satan to me. You are the, my adversary at this point. So Peter is not the devil. However, any of us that block Jesus' mission, even with good intentions, we might add, become the adversary of the kingdom and Jesus the king. Which that's kind of scary. In other words, if Jesus is calling Peter the devil, he would call us the devil too, because we've done the same thing. If Jesus had allowed Peter to prevent the Father's will and Jesus' mission, then the kingdom of God would not have been inaugurated. Look at uh, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, but if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I paraphrase this. If anyone wishes to be a disciple of mine, lay down your ego, sacrifice yourself, and only follow me. That's what he's saying to Peter. He's like, Peter, I know you're, I know you're super energetic. I know you love me. I know you mean well, but you're really causing me a problem at this moment because you're trying to block me from what I'm supposed to do. We've had this invitation and opportunities in our lives ever since we decided to put on Christ. Jesus is waiting for us, his church, 
to get behind him and to help rescue those that have been identified through the Holy Spirit that are his. Remember, we've said over several weeks, those that are his, the Father gives them to him. He will not lose any of them, and none of them can be plucked out of his hand. Those are the people he wants us to help him harvest or go get or invite into the family, whatever terminology you want to use. He doesn't need us to protect him from what he has been charged by the Father to do, and he's also doesn't really need to protect us from what he's charged us to do. So the next truth claim. When we are out in front of Jesus, attempting to disciple Jesus rather than following him, people get wounded by us. Maybe you've got an idea in your head, but there's one in the Bible that's really easy. Look who it is. It's Peter. They come to arrest Jesus in the garden. Peter stands in front of Jesus, grabs a sword, and cuts off the right ear of Malchus. And Jesus says... Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So he's asking him again. You're doing it again. You're blocking me from what the Father's asked me to do. Just like you tried to do at Caesarea Philippi, you're doing it here. I know this is coming. I know my betrayer is, is coming. He tells him that in the text. He's ready to go with who has come to get him, and Peter stands up and says he's not going to let it happen. The question to me and you is, will we get behind Jesus and stop trying to lead, protect and block. Because Jesus calls us to be his people, live his way, and love everyone as he does. And you know what? We can't really help rescue people any other way without harming them, just like Peter did with Malchus. If we're out in front of Jesus, we're disciples of ourselves instead of disciples of Christ. Renee Fuquay sent me something this week from class from Wednesday night, and I appreciated it so much. She sent me a song by Casting Crowns. It's called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And in that song, there's a lyric that says, The world is on their way to you, meaning Jesus, but they're tripping over me. And I thought, well, that goes right, that goes right in the sermon right there. I mean, I don't know how you knew that. That's a God thing. But uh, let's, not, let's not let that happen. Let's not let, let's not let them get tripped over us. To be students of Jesus, we must stay behind him, watching and listening to everything he does as an example of what we should be doing. If we're out in front, we're attempting to disciple God, and people end up losing ears. And then what happens is Jesus must come along behind us and heal the people that we've wounded while we were poorly trying to represent him. So, you know, Cheryl and I are animal lovers. This is one. This is a selection of our pack at home. Um, unlike human children that eventually learn so much that they might know as much as their parents or they might know even more than their parents often is the case, these little guys don't do that. Best I've been able to tell from people a lot smarter than me, the, these creatures that God has given us to, to steward, whether they be dogs, cats, fish, whatever, whatever you've got, hamsters, they make it to somewhere around a two-year-old level of intelligence. And I often look at them and I think to myself, what in the world were you thinking? You know? And then they look at me and their little ears go down and their eyes get real big. And I say to myself, okay, you know, I forgive you. I love you. And let's move on. And every time that happens, I think, whew, that's a whole lot like us and God. He looks at us and, what were you thinking? You're out front cutting people's ears off. You're telling me we're not going to do what God has told me, the Father's told me we're going to do. I know you mean well, but what were you thinking? 
and I forgive you and I love you anyway, and let's move on. So it's very similar with us and God, and actually the, the text tells us that. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think about that when I look at my little dogs. They can't think like me. They can't even rationalize the way I do. They don't understand. And then I think about how he looks at me, and I realize he looks at me the same way. So what if we took that philosophy and got back behind him instead of trying to lead, block, and protect him? And when we don't know, we just say, hey, we don't know. We don't know your ways. We're not of your, of your level of knowing. We often think of ourselves when we, when we have this conversation, I think, at least over my lifetime in the churches of Christ, we think of ourselves as sending the light. But here's one of the problems. The light we want to send oftentimes looks like a searchlight for other people's sins. Or it might look like a flashlight pointing people the way that we know for certain they should go. No, no hesitation. We're going to tell them exactly what they need to do. But really, I find that what we're seeing in Matthew 16 and what we see through the example of Peter is that we should be more like lighthouses. We should be showing people that what we've done when we've gotten out in front of Jesus and not meant to, or when we've wounded people and not meant to, we're trying to help them not do the same thing. We're trying to show them the dangers of what's around. We're trying to show them that the actual light is not us. The actual light is Jesus, and we're just reflectors of that light. So in summary, Jesus doesn't need our protection. He asks us to yield to his transformation of us from being like Peter to being like Jesus' very self. And each of us has gotten out in front of Jesus at some point in our lifetime. And if the Spirit is convincing you and convicting you this morning of trying to lead and control and do things that you think are good, that you think are because of how much you love Jesus, but actually you've got the discipleship order backwards, as our shepherds come, as we stand and sing, talk with them. They'll pray with you. Jesus will welcome you back behind him, and you can start following him again instead of being out front where we're not supposed to be. Let's stand and sing.